I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Martine Rothblatt, a pioneer in the satellite and pharmaceutical industries. She's the founder of Sirius Satellite Radio and United Therapeutics, a public pharmaceutical company initially focused on treating cardiopulmonary disorders. Martine also helped to launch the car navigation system Geostar and the satellite service provider PanAmSat, which was sold to a division of General Motors in 1995 for $3 billion. Martine lives in Vermont. She's a helicopter pilot and a parent of four children. She also used to be a man named Martin. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. You are trans a lot of things. I'd like to start with uh, your trans corporate life. Okay. You are a pioneer uh, in the satellite industry, uh, and it all started in the Seychelles, strangely, uh, in a group of islands uh, off of Africa. Can you describe the linkage between your discovery in the Seychelles and your career? Sure. I really uh, had no idea of what I wanted to do in life when I was in the Seychelles. In fact, I'd read a Newsweek article that this was supposed to be an idyllic set of islands where you could just catch fish literally with your hands and drink coconut milk. So I dropped out of UCLA and uh, went traveling over there, feeling just really oppressed by the LA environment. So I get to the Seychelles, but it was really pretty dirty. Um, I rented a small hut. Um, Every night the floor would fill with gigantic cockroaches, but I was there, so I just, you know, hung out and did the best I could. One day, um, one of the Seychelles friends I met asked me if I wanted to go with him up to the NASA tracking station. I didn't even know there was a NASA tracking station. I went up with him, and there it was like I stepped into another reality. I went from like, you know, like the past to the future. Everything was super clean and shiny and high-tech looking with blinking lights. And a very nice NASA engineer gave us a tour and explained what they were doing. And I asked him, why is this antenna that you have so humongous? Because it was bigger than a house. And he said, it's because the signals that we're tracking from deep space probes are so faint, they don't even have enough energy to light a light bulb. So we have to have a humongous collecting area in our giant satellite dish to receive the signal. And I asked him back, well, what if the satellite signals were very, very strong and powerful? He said, well, it's not possible to launch those type of satellites today, but if it was, then our receiving station could be very small and tiny. And the idea dawned in my head that if I could figure out a way to launch a powerful satellite, then everybody in the world could have their own tiny satellite receiving dish. Mm -hmm. I made a beeline back to UCLA. It's like Mm -hmm. I received a kind of quasi-religious epiphany in the Seychelles that I was going to connect the world with satellite communications, Mm -hmm. and this was a technologically practical thing to do. Mm -hmm. So I went from having a C average at UCLA to straight A's because I had a passion that I was going to be the world's expert on satellite communications. You were in your late 20s. Correct. Were there other examples in your life of, you know, having the moxie to say, you know what, I'm going to transform something? What were examples of that in in your childhood? My transformative examples were from biographies and also from science fiction. I was fascinated 
with the Robert Heinlein and Isaac Asimov uh, series of books. And those examples of people who transcended their background to become, you know, the man who purchased the moon and, and people who went to Mars, those books inspired me. Your mother always thought there was something unique about you, but I just thought, well, you know, welcome to being a Jewish mother. <laughs> Did you ever have a sense of self that kind of extended beyond what you thought other peers experienced? No, I didn't. I really felt myself um, pretty much a totally average person and lazy um, and usually trying to figure out the way to get something done with the least amount of work. And how about your parents? My my parents were hardworking and, and great people, but uh, my dad was a dentist for the retail clerks union, so he had kind of like a nine to six job. Uh, my mother was a speech pathologist at San Diego State College, so she would go there and, and teach each day. What in your mind was the most uh, pioneering or innovative experience you had in the satellite realm? One of the, to me, the, the most remarkable stories is when I was running Sirius, um, one of the business plans was to get the major radio stations to major uh, radio networks to invest in Sirius and to put their content on our satellite network. So I went to see Mel Karmazan, who was at that time the CEO of Infinity Radio Network, which hosted the Howard Stern Show um, nationwide. And I went to Mel and I did my satellite radio pitch and I said, this is going to be the future. Um, everyone is going to listen to satellite radio. And he just, he laughed at me um, and he turned, a, pivoted on his desk to his credenza and he said, you see these piles of paper here? He said, these are audience research reports that I commissioned to find out what the audience listening to each of our radio station thinks, what their demographics are, what their age is, how many of them are. He said, now, how high are those piles going to be the day you launch your Sirius XM radio system? Hmm. I said, well, on the first day, there'll be nobody listening to it. He said, exactly. He said, Martine, get a real job. So the funny... COVID. Fast forward a few years later, and who becomes the CEO of Sirius? Mel Carmason, yeah. And I loved having a chance to recount the story to him when I was on the Howard Stern Show. He remembered it. But it just goes to show what he was saying was not incorrect. But my vision for Sirius was pay radio. And his whole the whole paradigm of regular radio was commercial advertiser-supported radio. So it's an entire paradigm shift that had to be promoted. What else surprised you about launching a service like Sirius? Was it the regulatory hurdles or? I expected there to be regulatory hurdles. That process always involves taking the radio frequencies away from somebody else. So there's always an adversarial process involved. But what has surprised me was Sirius. To this day, I would say more people come up to me and thank me for providing uh, Howard Stern and other content to them via Sirius. Mm -hmm. Then people come up to me and thank me for saving their children with the medicines that we produce at United Therapeutics. Mm. What does that say? I think it says that information is very, very important. In fact, there's a quotation I've heard that says, information is the necessary, if not sufficient, basis for development. You left Sirius, and you found yourself uh, in another industry, the pharmaceutical industry. And I purposely used the passive uh, because it didn't seem like an active decision to go into the pharmaceutical industry just on the face of it. Uh, you have a daughter, Genesis, um, whom you discovered has a disease, a 
pulmonary hypertension disease. And she's the one who came up with the idea that you launched this company. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, it's true that my first love and, and actually most lasting love is space technology, satellite communications. If I could snap my fingers and sort of like, you know, reimagine the whole universe, I would be right back running either Sirius XM or probably even like a Elon Musk uh, SpaceX type of company. But um, the fact of the matter is that I, um, I love my children and uh, my youngest daughter, who is just a beautiful, simple child, gets diagnosed with this life-threatening disease, pulmonary hypertension. There were no medicines available. So it, was, it wasn't a matter of thinking about it. I just went to the library and began doing research. Now, you mentioned you went to the library, but it was you and she who would go to the library we together. Would. That's true. Seven-year-old Genesis. Yes, we would together. She was very, very helpful. And I would say to her, I know there was an article by Dr. Rich, and she would say, wait a second. And this is Stuart Rich, a, a physician in, in Illinois. And she'd look through the pile of, of Xerox copies of articles and say, here's the Dr. Rich article. You launched United Therapeutics with your own capital. That's correct. Uh, from Sirius. The drug, which later got FDA approval, um, was developed by a gentleman, James Crow. Correct. There was a gentleman, Dr. Crow, um, at GlaxoSmithKline who had a solution for pulmonary hypertension, a new medicine, but Glaxo would not let him develop it because the patient population was too small. And GlaxoSmithKline had recently purchased the Burroughs Welcome Company. Burroughs Welcome was a very old line pharmaceutical company, and they would develop things whether they were profitable or not. So SmithKline, Glaxo bought them. And when they bought them, the first thing they said is, we are not pursuing any more of these um, you know, fairy tale dreams. We have a, a filter. We will only pursue drugs that promise a billion dollars or more in revenues, which are called blockbusters. You got hold of uh, Dr. Crow's uh, telephone number yes. and called him. Yes, cold called him. And what was his posture towards you originally? A great skepticism. How is somebody who is a satellite CEO going to develop a medicine? How are you going to get it out of a pharmaceutical company? I'm very sorry about your daughter, but there's nothing I can do to help you. Miss Mar Martine Rothblatt, upon hearing that, that probably just put more fire under your belly. It did. I was actually, he did me a great favor by doing that mm. because I was pretty much um, back to the Martine who was galvanized by the dream of uniting the world with satellite communications. And I said, now, you know what? Um, I did something like that. I can do this. Yeah. I can do this. And coincidentally, at the very same time frame, People sent me two movies to watch. One was Lorenzo's Oil. There was a story of a father trying to save his son by doing things that pharmaceutical companies wouldn't. Mm -hmm. And another was, the, to me, the, the archetypical entrepreneur movie called Tucker about this uh, man who invented the seatbelt, the parabolic uh, headlight lens for cars, the shatterproof glass for windows, who after World War II tried to create a new type of automobile called the Tucker and was uh, beaten down by the big three automakers in Michigan. United Therapeutics is public. You became the highest paid female CEO in America upon FDA approval, the stock price uh, went up exponentially. And how do you navigate that? What does that mean exactly? 
So what it really means is that um, my compensation is tied to our stock price. Uh, so this was as of 2013. And you're not somebody who really revels in the public light. What were your reactions when media was coming to you because of this fact that happened almost accidentally? So it's it's um, basically a kind of embarrassment, at least in my own personality. I don't try to be the center of attention. But I do realize as a public company CEO, every element of my compensation is publicly disclosed. And by the way, when, when I first read that fact and the, the fact that you were previously a man, I thought, seriously, the highest paid female CEO, of course, ha- has to have had been a man. I feel that that's unfair, too. I agree with you. I tell you the truth, I had exactly the same feeling. And But I do know in other years, the highest paid female CEO had always been a female. So I'm sort of like the exception that proves the rule. United Therapeutics is public. And your annual reports, I think they're, they're kind of different. unconventional. You tell me about them. So our annual reports are different. One of our annual reports was in the form of a graphic novel that told the story of a, a new employee Uh, Another of the annual reports was in the form of a children's book. It was uh, patterned after Goodnight Moon. It was called Good Year UTHR, that being our our ticker symbol. Uh, Another of the annual reports is in the form of what we call a periodic tablecloth of utelements. So we make an annual report because that's something that's legally required. But there's no rule that says your annual report can't be a children's book. The company now is extending beyond uh, just hypertension, and I'm intrigued by uh, your focus on uh, xenotransplantation, uh, which is basically taking animal organs and um, surgically putting them into human beings. Correct. Correct. The, although the real uh, trick there is to first genetically modify the animal organ so that it will not be rejected when it's put into the human being. And we formed a joint partnership with Craig Venter's company, the man who decoded the human genome, um, called Synthetic Genomics is the name of his company. Why focus on a pig versus another animal? So it's an odd quirk of nature that of all the animals in the animal kingdom, the animal whose organs match the size and shape of humans better than any others is the pig, even better than chimpanzees, by the way. Now, this is somebody who grew up in an observant Jewish household. Were there any even irrational just reactions that you might have had when you first discovered this? You know, the good thing about um, all religions, uh, Judaism, Islam, Christianity, is they really are very rational within their own belief system. So Judaism, like Islam, like Christianity and Hindu, believe that the the sanctity of life rises above all other things. By the way, I did my PhD thesis on xenotransplantation. I interviewed um, rabbis, um, imams, people from all the different religions, um, and it turned out that all of them said, we accept the transplantation of animal organs, pig organs in particular, Mm -hmm. into bodies. So it's kosher, it's halal, it's okay if it's being done to save a human's life. You have a pig farm in Vermont. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Right, so the name of the pig farm, it's called Revivacor. What's um, grown there are pigs that already have uh, several genes knocked out. We now be having modified the first few genes of the pig Our organs, when they're placed into a person, last from months to as long as over a year now at the NIH. In fact, my mantra to the company 
is inspired by JFK's mantra when he said, I want to land a man on the moon and safely return them to the earth before the end of the decade. I tell people in our company that we want to transplant a xenolung into a patient and return that patient safely to health before the end of this decade. You're a helicopter pilot. Is there any connection uh, between uh, wanting to get your helicopter license and this endeavor? As most people know, when organs are donated for transplantation, they're generally transported by helicopter because you only want to have the organ outside of a, of a bodily system, outside of blood and whatnot, for a short period of hours. So to avoid traffic jams and to go over long distances, organs are usually transported by helicopter or plane from location to location. I'm also a fixed-wing pilot as, as well. It would give me a, a great sense of completion of accomplishment to be able to personally deliver one of our first sets of Xeno lungs to a waiting patient. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Martine Rothblatt, the founder of the pharmaceutical company United Therapeutics. Martine is transgender. She became a woman in 1994 at age 40 after having had sex reassignment surgery. I want to talk about your transgender life. How has this physical change uh, changed the way you feel? That's a really uh, tough question to answer, um, especially, you know, briefly. I think the answer that really bubbles to my mind is, as being core and essential is that I've always felt like a woman. So I found myself, as I went into my teenage years, identifying with the women in the room where I would be instead of the men in the room. Yet I was totally, obviously, aware that everybody considered me a boy and then a man. And I was totally aware that when somebody deviated from those socially accepted roles that they were sanctioned, they were laughed at. I didn't want to be laughed at. So I kept my feelings of being a woman tightly bottled up inside myself because I didn't really want to be uh, laughed at. I would think a, a man who understands women would be very attractive to women. Uh, did you have girlfriends? And I did. I always, I mean, when you're talking about like sexual orientation side of, of being a woman, my sexual orientation has always been to women as a woman. So if I was to give it a label, it would be lesbian label. Yet I was faced with this contradiction that I had the body of a man. What's an example of, you know, uh, you're identifying with the women in the room? I'd say, like, if there is a topic being faced in the room and um, one group of people are kind of hard-edged about solving the problem and the other group of people are maybe like, maybe there's a way we can massage the situation – I just naturally go to the massage situation. In 1995, you wrote a manifesto called The Apartheid of Sex, uh, which demystified or criticized the classification of things by gender. That's correct. And um, my point of view was that was really based on the research um, that came before me, specifically um, Professor Ann Fausto-Sterling from Brown who had written that there are not two um, sexes. There are actually multiple different sexes. She discovered, for example, that it's not as simple as saying women have two X chromosomes and men have X and a Y because there are people born with two Xs and one Y, two Ys, one X, all kind of variants in between. But in most cases, these uh, intersexualities were not so manifest that they were observed by uh, surgeons at the time of birth. So mm -hmm. nobody said, oh, this is an intersex 
next child. So these are genetic mutations. Yeah,、um, I would say it's it's part of the natural diversity of of human life, and so that got me thinking. Well, if there's all of this fluidity in the body, there must be just as much fluidity in the mind. You you said that、uh, separating people by gender is similar to separating blacks and whites, which of, of course. course. And by the way, when I wrote that, it was considered like crazy.、Mm -hmm. But now in Germany and、um, a couple of other municipalities, parents can decide not to stamp male or female on a child's birth certificate,、mm -hmm. and the idea of being gender queer, basically self-defining one's own gender, has gone from being you know totally. On the margins, to I would say for people who are like millennial generation, it's beginning to be like you know a thread of that culture. Speaking of of race,、uh, your wife is African American,、uh, Bina Aspen. You married her in 1981 when you were a man, and it was surprised to her ten years later、uh, that you wanted to undergo this sexual reorientation.、Mm -hmm. How long were you thinking about this before you actually mentioned it to her? Well, I would think about it the whole time because、um, I've been transgendered feeling since I was a teenager. So I thought about it the whole time, but it was something that I thought just had to be bottled up forever. And fortunately, there were pioneers who came before me in the 1970s and 1980s. People like the ophthalmologist Renee Richards,、um, who also became a tennis star, and I read other biographies of transgendered people who had come out. And、um, there's a judge in、uh, Houston, Texas, Judge Phyllis Fry.、Um, so these people gave me hope and inspiration that maybe I could、um, come out as well. And her response? Her response was immediately open. I mean, it wasn't like, "Oh my God!" Was, there was never a "Oh my God." It was、um, okay.、Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's really interesting.、Um, that's fine with me. I love you for your soul. Not any part of your skin. And she calls you Martine. She's Martine sexual. And I feel my identity is being a sexual. Your children. Talk to me about your approach to them, and I'm curious as to the the array of responses. Sure. Well, all four of them were very accepting, and I'm eternally grateful to them for that because so many other transgendered people I know have horrible situations of being disowned by portions of their family. And so、um, I said to each of the four kids、uh, that this is what I wanted to do: change my sex to female, but I would not do it if they objected. And each of them had a very different response, perhaps reflecting their various ages. The oldest was my son Eli; he was about twenty. Okay, and he said, "It's your life,、uh, Martin. You you have to do what what you want to do with your life." He was a student at Johns Hopkins at the time. Uh, the next oldest was Sunny. She's a fashion designer here in New York City now. She was at that time about eighteen, and、uh, she said, "Lots of my friends have two moms or two dads. I don't see anything so strange about that." So it's really interesting that she saw it in a totally different way. Is just like now she has two moms. That's right. Whereas I've actually never really tried to be the mom. I they still call me dad, but that's how she saw it.、Uh, my son Gabriel,、uh, who was in junior high at the time, hardest probably. Yeah, it was the hardest, and、um, he said that、uh, friends would tease him, and he said he only wanted to know would I still be his dad, and I promised him, Gabriel, I'll always be your dad, no matter what.、And、he said, okay, it's okay with me. 
I read in New York Magazine uh, that you said, well, I'm going to be like a butterfly. Yes, I did say that. His, he has four children now, and they call me Grand Martine. And then the youngest, yes. Genesis, um, she was quite young. She was uh, 10 years old. And she was actually the one who outed me to my own parents because she told them, you know, Martine has these women's clothes that she and mom wear when they go out places. And then my dad and mom asked me, is this true? Why, why would you do this? <laughs> and, but Genesis said, well, it seems to me just I love my dad and she loves me. Mm. And it was just remarkable how she just switched the pronoun and made the whole thing make sense. That's right. So she said, okay. My and your mom, mother? My mom said, look, we could have had two daughters or a son and a daughter. It doesn't make any difference to us. I've noticed sometimes in this interview I, I'm confusing pronouns and things like that. Does, does that get under your skin? Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. I'm, like, totally flexible with it. Um, in fact, it's kind of an interesting recharge test to me. Just going out with strangers, some people say ma'am, some people say sir. It's almost like 50-50. And it's kind of really interesting. But it, I'm like, as long as you, as long as, you know, you call me Martine, I'm happy. See, you have the mind of a woman, like, so, so, so understanding. <laughs> Thank, <laughs> I'm, you. Thank I'm, you. Thank <laughs> was, you. Was marrying an African-American woman almost uh, equally striking to people at the time? It was pretty, it was, it was shocking to some people. Mm-hmm. This was, um, this was less than 20 years after it was illegal for people to marry people of, uh, of different races. The Supreme Court case Loving versus Virginia was decided in the 1960s. So it was um, our kids were teased. Our oldest son, Eli, said kids at school would call him a zebra. So I think it was analogous. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Martine Rothblatt, the highest paid transgendered CEO in America. Martine is also transhuman, launching efforts to extend human life and achieve immortality through biotech and artificial intelligence. Her most recent book, called Virtually Human, The Promise and Peril of Digital Immortality, is written with Ray Kurzweil, the lead engineer at Google. Could you describe briefly the thesis of your book? Sure. A lot of the top engineers in Silicon Valley have been working on creating cyber consciousness, um, allowing things like Siri to develop greater and greater capabilities until they're really personality operating systems. So what always intrigued me about that, um, perhaps because of my legal background and I have the PhD in medical ethics, it was, is what are the ethical consequences of creating consciousness and software? Do we have the right to create consciousness and, and the consciousness and then just turn it off? Now, your hope is to, uh, if I'm speaking correctly, you know, being transhuman is to um, bring immortality and life extension to people both in the body but also out of body uh, through things like mind clones. Well, that's right. I believe that the purpose of the biotechnology industry in general is to keep people alive longer. So Ray Kurzweil was, I think, the first person to ask, um, well, when does that end? You know, if you ask yourself that question, you realize that there is no ending point, that as long as somebody values their life, we all would like to keep that person alive as long as possible. So what will happen to your body uh, when it dies? When my body dies, it will, it will like, you know, well, in the case of me in particular, mm-hmm. it will be frozen at a company called Alcor in Arizona, what's called cryonization. And how about your digital self? 
My digital self will, I believe, be, um, after a span of some years, be activated as a mind clone of my flesh brain and will continue a life in cyberspace. Now, when you say a mind clone of your flesh brain and be in cyberspace, I think you lost listeners there sure. a little bit. What is a mind clone? A mind clone is if you take all of your digital reflections of yourself, which you've uploaded to the cloud and to servers in your computers, all of your Facebook postings, all of your likes, all of your blogs, all of your photos, um, all of your Instagrams, if you take all of that and then you wrap some, you, you purchase some software called Mindware that elicits the personality evident in those uploads. And you combine the two, you end up with a mind clone of yourself, a software version of your mind that has most of your memories, feelings, recollections, and beliefs, and also has your characteristic expressions, mannerisms, and how you think. Now, who who wants to be around uh, Martine's mind clone? Do you think your your wife, your kids? Who else beyond that? I no think, offense. Yeah, no problem. I think um, my friends um, would also want to be around my mind clone, and where, I would also want to be around their mind clone. Where would you live? Where would the mind clone live? The mind clone would live in the cloud and presents itself wherever there's a display. And by the way, I'd be curious about my mind clone because, uh, you know, I don't know myself enough to know what that mind clone would be. Are you kind of curious about what the outer manifestation of yourself is beyond w what I see in front of me? I think there'll be lots of books written about with titles such as uh, 10 Things I Learned About Myself from My Mind Clone. <laughs> you live in Vermont, and you have started this organization called TerraSim, which mm -hmm. is devoted to life extension. And I think of Vermont as being bucolic, and here you have this, you know, uber-futuristic endeavor. And it reminds me of your experience at the Seychelles, which I have not been there. Also, in my mind, seems like a, you know, placid bed of islands, yet NASA was tracking satellite systems behind a closed door. Correct. Do you think about that dichotomy in both places? I do. Um, I think that uh, Vermont is very bucolic and, and beautiful. On the other hand, Vermont is also a place to a place where there are a lot of great scientists and information technology. IBM has a major center there. University of Vermont has one of the nation's most advanced gene sequencing machines. So there's a lot more technology going on in Vermont than than people would expect. What is something that I might not know about you? We're talking about how you're trans a lot of things. One thing you might not know about me is that I have not purchased a ticket on a rocket ship ride around the Earth, and I have no interest in doing so. My feeling is that the Earth is the greatest spaceship in the universe. We can see almost all the different stars, certainly in, in our own galaxy. As we travel around the sun, we get a different perspective of the entire sky. Um, in the meanwhile, we're perfectly comfortable. We can breathe the air. We can jump and swim and fly in the air. So I treasure above everything else Spaceship Earth. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. My guest has been Martine Rothblatt. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. <laughs>